This episode of Lucky Paper Radio is brought to you by Abolish. This little-known disenchant variant from Prophecy has an alternate casting cost, allowing you to remove a bothersome artifact or enchantment by discarding a planes rather than paying its mana cost. This episode is also brought to you by Ice. Players sometimes underestimate the second half of beloved split card Fire Ice, but in the early turns of the game, it can be a miniature time walk, tapping down your opponent's land on upkeep and drawing you a card. A big thank you to both of our sponsors. Abolish Ice. Welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. My name is Andy, and I'm here again with Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Hey, Andy. How's it going? Oh, it's good. It's fine. It's good. Fridays are always good. If we keep our Friday recording time, I think we'll be able to maintain a nice positive attitude on the podcast because (laughs) we're going right into the weekend, you know? That's a great point. Although, once the world is uh, started up again, I feel like Friday evenings are probably not going to be the most ideal time to record, record a podcast. Hey, you alone know, you room, know, that's you know? that's not uh, something that you should worry about. Of all the things to worry <laughs> about right now, <laughs> the idea of us getting, you know, having being able to do stuff on Friday nights is the least least concern. Oh yeah, I just I have so much anxiety about the pandemic. I just keep thinking like, when it restarts, like, what am I going to do first? I'm just so anxious. <laughs> What restaurant am I going to go to first? I just I love restaurants so I much. I mean that again. That might be an easy decision. There might not be that many choices left. Mm, welcome to the Baltimore <laughs> restaurant. The one restaurant left Baltimore in Baltimore. Restaurant. It's called Baltimore Food that you well, didn't cook. Mm. And there's only I mean one honestly, left. honestly, that is that's exactly what I want. Like if if let's say we could snap it. Like it wasn't a slow return. If we could just snap our fingers and have normal life. I would want to be at a crab restaurant having my once every four year outdoor friend crab feast. Just getting a bunch of old bay stuck under your fingers, slicing up Absolutely. your hands on those crab God, the, shells. The sting all over your hands because you know the little bits cut all over into your fingers, uh, and the old bay gets in there, uh, and you just—it's—it's it's like spicy food, but you feel it all over your hands and face. A full body, a full spicy body experience. Spicy. It's exactly it. You know, you can make crabs happen while you're stuck at home. Do you think I'm just going to be, like, alone? <laughs> just... <laughs> I like the idea of you putting Which... a little card table on the sidewalk in front of your apartment, and you just set up there. You put a little, like, you know, a little, like, uh, caution tape so no one enters your six-foot radius, and you just go a hog on some crabs all alone on the sidewalk. That's just, I can't not think of, is it in Waiting for Guffman, the scene with the woman cooking a single chicken wing on, a, like, a miniature Weber grill? Talking about... I have never seen Waiting for Guffman, so I don't know. All right. We'll have a, we'll have a remote watch party. I feel like without it planning it, almost all of our little uh, cold open sea where we just uh, make no plan and start talking are going to revolve around food, as that is 100%. maybe maybe 100%. the only thing more important to you and I uh, other than magic. And, you know, our loved ones, I guess, technically. Eh. So food is good. We, we're food in agreement there. Food is uh, S tier, you know, A plus. I mean, especially now, like what else are you doing? Yeah, you're just eating and sleeping and working. That's all you got. So I might as well make food just good. Eating, sleeping, working, and work and sleep are not that interesting. Mm, depends. <laughs> Last night, <laughs> this is maybe too personal to share on the podcast. We'll, Hit we'll me. decide later. But uh, last night I woke up in the middle of the night because Hillary was like poking me in the chest, and she was like, "You stopped breathing." <laughs> and she, I think, was just confused in the middle of the night and thought I had stopped breathing when I was actually just sleeping. But Chances are, maybe I did stop breathing and have That's horrible sleep apnea. That is a we'll find out as the story develops. <laughs> Keep us informed, please. I'll let you know if I get, continue to be woken up and, by my wife you know, worried I'm dead. Breathe. 
Uh, all right, Anthony. Uh, we've decided we're going to at least try starting these shows with a, uh, a cube pack one, pick one, uh, which we are un- unapologetically cribbing from, uh, from the Limited Resources podcast, of which you and I are both avid listeners. Shout out to Marshall and LSV. And uh, you know, that show is all about drafting the current limited environment, whatever the current set is. And they begin each episode with a pack one, pick one, which especially when I was first getting into the show was one of my favorite parts of the episode because it was just, it's very concrete, right? Like you get to actually think through what you would take in the same position and whatever their sort of perspectives on cards are. Um, you get to hear them, which I think is really helpful. So we're going to do this with cube, which I think will be fun. And um, we'll start this week with just my cube. And this will be the last time we'll do my boring cube, I think, because in the future, I want to do this with uh, all different kinds of listener submitted cubes. So if you are listening out there and you would like Anthony and I to pack one, pick one, your cube on air, just uh, send us your cube link and your name and your pronouns uh, to mail at luckypaper.co, and uh, and we will do it on air. Um, so you ready to dive into this, Anthony? I'm so ready. Great. So this is uh, this is my uh, my main cube, which is a unpowered vintage cube. Um, you know, it's a boring old cube like everyone else has with all the powerful cards. Um, no interesting stipulations or limitations there. So uh, we'll just start with the first card. I'm not gonna. We're not gonna read the rules text on all of these. I think the rule is gonna be that uh, if you know the rules text, we're gonna assume the listener does too, because I think most of our listeners are gonna be somewhat committed cube players. And uh, if not, you can always pause and Google. But um, first card in the pack is Inferno Titan. Anthony, your thoughts on Inferno Titan? Uh, that is currently my pick. <laughs> all right, <laughs> out of the gates, we're gonna take the card instead of not taking the card. I still like Inferno Titan. Uh, next up, Phyrexian Metamorph, the uh, the colorless clone. Uh, also great. Wow, all the cards are good. Don't you love Cube? Are you, but between Metamorph and, and Titan, which one are you taking? Uh, I'm absolutely on Metamorph over Titan, just because it's effectively a colorless card and is cheaper. Mm-hmm. Maybe wheel that Titan, you get to clone your own Titan. That's pretty fun. Oh my god, yeah. Uh, next up, we have the new a White Planeswalker, Bosri Ket. I will read this one because it's new. Uh, so this is a three-mana Planeswalker, a one white-white for a three-loyalty Planeswalker. Uh, he plus ones to put a plus-one, plus-one counter on up to one target creature and give it indestructible until end of turn. He has a minus two, which is kind of like a Rabble Master-esque ability, where he says whenever one or more non-token creatures attack this turn, you create that many 1-1 one, one white soldier creature tokens that are tapped and attacking. And then he has some ultimate that doesn't matter and wins you the game eventually. Um, basically, you know, his plus is make your, make your creature a little bigger and make it indestructible. And his minus is, uh, you know, put a token into play for all of your attacking non-token creatures. I'm not super excited about it. I'm curious to see how it ends up playing out, but um, compared to a lot of the other stuff, you have a three mana in white. Uh, it doesn't seem super impactful. I was actually just playing it in, you know, a janky standard brew, and it, it just doesn't play out great uh, unless, you know, I'm sure I'm missing some way to build around it. But so far, I'm definitely still much more excited about Metamorph. Cool. I agree. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm curious to test it. I feel like it might be at an interesting spot for uh, for white Planeswalkers. You know, three mana Planeswalkers tend to either be really really strong because it only costs three mana and it is in fact a planeswalker or they can be kind of underwhelming because for the for the aggressive cost the sort of development of the card has been you know really conservative um, the thing that excites me about this card specifically is the down tick uh, the fact that you can down tick if a turn comes into play and basically kind of like double your board size means i think it is pretty relevant even in the middle and late game which might be interesting but um but yeah, you've played with it. I have not yet so far, so I will trust your judgment on that. I wouldn't take it over Metamorph either, frankly. Um, next up is Snuff Out, the free Doomblade if you just control a swap and pay for life. 
pretty good removal spell, but I don't think we're going to take it over Metamorph, I imagine, right? No. All right, here's a, here's a contender. Uh, we have Smuggler's Copter. Ooh. Uh, it's definitely close for me. Um, I think I still like Metamorph a little bit more, but both of them being uh, colorless cards and pretty decent in a lot of different decks make them pretty appealing picks. I, I agree they're both high picks. For me, I think it is Copter, uh, and it's not really close. I, I like Metamorph, really? but uh, Metamorph has this, you know, it does have a really low floor. Sometimes you just can't cast it. There's nothing on yeah, board to fair. clone. that's fair. Um, Copter does have a floor, too. I mean, if you can't crew it, it doesn't do anything. It just sits there and does nothing. But uh, I've just found that it's such an amazing piece of any aggressive deck because it gives you two things that a lot of aggressive decks are often lacking, which is evasion, which is really important, um, and also some kind of card selection, right? Like being able right. to loot every single turn with your aggro deck basically guarantees you're not going to flood out. You're just going to keep on you know, casting spells and only playing lands when you need them, um, which I found to be really, really important. So um, I rate Smuggler's Copter highly. Like I, I often, I kind of have it in this little pantheon in my head alongside uh, Umazawa's GTA. as like, this is the first time they printed like a really broken version of this card type and uh yeah. probably was too broken <laughs> they, they both you know they caught had to some make bands. it exciting <laughs> I, I mean trust me as a as a cube owner of a very powerful cube i'm glad when they when they break card types and really push things a little bit too far but uh but for me it's like close to on that power level it is it is really messed up so i'm on copter at this point all right i see your point um next card him to turok uh, it's, it's a pretty rough mana cost. Uh, I mean, yeah, again, I'm definitely more in on taking something colorless, uh, than a somewhat conditional, uh, very, like, aggressively devoted to one color card. Yep, very committal, I agree. I can't really imagine a pack I would take him to Turok out of pack one, pick one. I have to be really quite a, quite a rough pack for me to be excited to commit that yeah. hard to a color. All right, next and, up and, is... And really oh. an archetype, you know, it's, it's not gonna just fit into any black deck. I mean, I'd put it in any black deck that had enough swamps or enough black okay. mana sources. Um, I, like, I know it's not really like what the control deck usually wants to be doing, but right. um, you know, it's it's a two for one, and the random it could be really uh, that's really that's devastating. True. That's true. I forget about that. Yeah, it's pretty gross. All right, what's next? Uh, next up is ultimate price, another removal spell. So we can probably lump that in in a similar tier as stuff out. Yep. Um, then we got giver of runes. Which, you know, slightly worse mom, but has some edge cases where she could be a little better. I assume that's not dethroning uh, Metamorph for you? Uh, no, and I think you've talked me into the copter, so. All right, both on we copter. Are still on that. Uh, then we have Shriek Maul, another black removal spell. There's a lot of removal in my environment, if you haven't mm-hmm. caught up on that so far. Um, where do you rate Shriek Maul relative to a card like Ultimate Price uh, or a card like Snuff Out, which, you know, both those cards are instant speed. Snuff Out can be cast for zero, which gives it a little bit of an edge. But, uh, you know, Shriek Maul, being a sorcery, also gets the ability to, uh, you know, play it as a 5-mana 3-2 that also has the uh, kills a creature. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're both in the same spot, that Shriek Maul has the really unfortunate destroy-target non-black creature text that is, even if it's, like, very strong, it just grates on me a little bit. So I'm a little bit uh, hesitant to put it in my deck. Um, and just overall in power level, like, there's so many easy ways to get card advantage in this sort of uh, legacy environment that... Uh, Getting an extra creature with your removal spell is not quite as uh, not quite as impressive as maybe it used to be. Yeah, I will say the the non black creature thing really irritates me as a cube designer. Um, as yeah. a player, I just recognize that like it's still going to remove the vast majority of the things I need, and if I get got by it, I get got by it. But I'm definitely always going to main deck a shriek ball in pretty much any black deck. Um, here, I think uh, this is interesting because it kind of shows 
why, even though these effects seem redundant, um, I actually really strive to have like no two cards that are actually completely interchangeable in my cube. And here, you know, between Snuff Out, Ultimate Price, and Shriek Maul, there are still certain decks that want certain cards more, right? Like my aggressive deck really wants Snuff Out because I don't care about the life loss and being able to remove a blocker while still developing my board uh, is a huge advantage. Um, Whereas, you know, something like Shriek Maw, you know, sorcery speed on an aggressive deck is a little bit better than a controlling deck. So Ultimate Price kind of gets the, the sort of nod for like the best card for a control deck probably. Whereas Shriek Maw is like particularly great in mid-range because you can get to that five mana a little more easily and you are just going to kind of outvalue your opponent. So in this one pack with these three black removal spells, we have one that's a little bit leaned towards aggro, one a little bit leaned towards control, and one a little bit leaned towards mid-range, which, uh, yeah. I don't know, highlights something I'm proud of about how the cube is kind of put together. And, and Shriek Maw is definitely, it has a, a, a pretty good evasive ability. It has, what, fear? Is that right? Yep, it's got fear, which is, um, uh, you know, can't be blocked except for by black and artifact creatures. Which, in a slow matchup, can definitely be a real clock. Yeah, for sure. No doubt. All right, uh, moving on, we have Grave Titan. So uh, both of the remaining Titans in my cube are in this pack. I assume that's not taking us off of colorless cards. It's close. I mean... I, I like Grave Titan more than any of the black cards here. Uh, it's just such a powerful finisher. Uh, basically, any black deck, except for the most aggressive, is going to be really excited to have it. But yeah, it's 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 hard to take a six mana colored spell over a Smoker's Copter. Yeah, and that's um, you know, I I do try to limit finishers because I think in in like for example the Magic Online Vintage Cube, I think it's usually a pretty bad idea to take a six mana spell first basically no matter what, because there are so many six-mana spells in that cube, and they're all perfectly serviceable and will we'll finish the game for you, um, that you really just would rather have cheap interaction, acceleration, you know, anything that kind of helps you develop your board and, and get you into a place where you can cast the big spells. Um, so in my cube, I, I do think it is a slightly higher pick, because, uh, it, again, there aren't that many. There's, that's the only... There's two six-drops in black, and with that and also the big Liliana... Um, and there's just not that many big finishers running around that are that powerful. Um, but I'm still, I'm just not going to start on a six mana card. Um, you know, my deck can be okay if I don't get uh, enough six mana finishers or whatever, but my deck is not okay if I don't have enough twos or, you know, cheap interaction. So I'm not taking it early. Um, then we have Legion Warboss, probably the the least of the Rabble Masters that I currently run. Um, moving on to, we have Fatal Push, another black removal spell. Um, how do you rate Fatal Push as compared to the other black removal spells we've, we've looked at so far? Uh, that's a question I think you're more equipped to answer, if I'm honest, uh, with more experience about what's in the cube. I think it's probably a little bit worse on balance. Um, yeah, I think so, too. Um, you're not going to be able to reliably trigger revolts. You really can't count on that. Um, it's a nice upside if you get it, but you know this is not like constructed where you have just... 12 fetch lands in your deck and you're always getting it revolt when you need it pretty much right so um it's really just removing two cmc things and its value is that uh you know it is only one mana so again this this is kind of like snuff out and that i think it leans a little more aggressive because i'm gonna want in my aggressive deck to be able to you know fatal push my opponents birds of paradise and play another one drop on turn two uh and kind of keep the pressure on um, whereas any of the two mana removal spells just don't line up quite as well in that situation. So I'd probably put it in basically any black deck, but I do agree that on balance, I think it's lower than the more unconditional removal spells. Right. And I mean, if you're just talking about pure efficiency, like snuff out is still more efficient uh, and actually hits anything. So if there's a four drop that suddenly stalls out your aggro deck, you could actually deal with it with snuff out. Snuff out is non-black too, unfortunately. So <sighs> not quite everything. Almost. 
It's very. Sh- it's it's a real shame. I'm glad we're getting. <laughs> we more can do and a whole whole episode spells. on that. We could. We could do a whole episode on stupid non-black uh, rider on old black removal. It really, really, really gets my gourd. Um, all right, three cards left. Uh, so now we have Avacyn's Pilgrim, Anthony. The first green card has appeared. I know you love green. Is this going to pull you away from Smuggler's Copter? Oh, 100%. It's green. What are you talking about? I mean, is that true? Or are you trolling No, I'm trolling you. <laughs> no, and honestly, I'm... Uh, your cube has definitely evolved a lot. Um, so initially it was very much about sort of cheap ramp with lots of small elves that ramp into a crater hoof and you allegedly win the game. Um, and that always <laughs> felt very much like a glass cannon. Like I would, I would end up trying to draft that a lot and it would just, you know, somebody would bolt your bird and your whole game plan would be, you know, in the toilet or, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I guess e- even more likely is you just draw the wrong half of your deck. You draw all the elves and you don't draw the finisher. Um, I don't think that's true anymore, but what that also means is that the green cards I'm excited to start with are like a four-mana Planeswalker more than just the ramp spells. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is definitely true. So, I mean, uh, my cube is like almost four years old now, three and a half years old, and uh, the first iteration um, was basically entirely inspired by the the Magic Online Vintage Cube, and uh, I did have that kind of glass cannon green ramp deck where it was like, you know, my whole idea for green is that you're the only deck that gets to play six, seven, and eight mana spells, and your whole job is just to play a bunch of ramp and then start throwing haymakers. Um, and I definitely experienced all of the problems with that strategy you just described. The biggest one for me was just it felt like if your opponent had one counter spell, so oftentimes yep. your whole deck was like, well, because I mean, people don't talk about this enough, but a uh, you know a mana dork is a like kind of a card disadvantage card. Uh, you know, you're, you're playing a one-mana 1-1 one, one in your in your deck, and those are not good cards. You mentioned this on a previous episode, and so it's only really worth it if you get a big tempo boost out of it. I mean, there are other ways, too. You can obviously put counters on it, or you get something like Opposition. You can use your, your extra bodies, but, you know, uh, on average, just sort of across the board, you know, your 1-1 one, one is not really worth a card in an environment like this, so... You need that tempo advantage. So when you play, you know, three mana dorks and then, you know, seven mana for some big spell and it just gets counterspelled, it's as if that counterspell countered four cards, basically, right? right because, yeah, exactly. you know, it's, it's a total blowout and it just, uh, it felt bad. And even when you won with the deck, it also felt bad because you just cast your big thing and no one could stop you. Um, so I have really pushed the green deck uh, towards, uh, basically, I've really just tried really hard to support mid-range and, you know, have more smaller threats that are still resilient, still powerful, and still entirely capable of winning the game. Um, that was a big part of it for me is that I think early on it was like if the green deck wins, it wins by this enormous margin and you got crushed into a fine pace and had no chance. And, you know, magic doesn't it doesn't matter how much you win by in magic. You just have to do 20 damage. It doesn't matter if you deal 50 or if you have an enormous board when it happens. So um, yeah. I found that a lot of four and five drops are able to just close the game out just as effectively without all that inherent risk. Now, all that Definitely. said... They're, they're, still, they're still very effective if you're able to, you know, play your Biogenic Ooze or your Vivian on turn three or four instead of on turn five. But, like, that's a, a strategy that's easier to feel you want to commit to because it's, it's, you know, you'll have an opportunity where your opponent's tapped out and doesn't have the counterspell. Right, right. Now, all that said, though, Anthony, um, I disagree with you a little bit here. I would definitely be looking to take the efficient ramp before the four and five mana spells, even the really good ones. Like... I mean, I guess probably the best five mana card is uh, probably still Nissa, who shakes the world um, in green, and she's very strong. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I picks I could imagine first picking her um, probably, though I'm not super excited to first pick a five drop. Um, but I'm still looking to take uh, mana dorks really highly and rate them super highly. So um, I think for me, this is the second card I would take out of his pack after Smuggler's Copter. 
Um, really? Yep. Yeah, I think it goes for me, Copter, then Pilgrim. Um, and then after that, probably all the way down to Metamorph. I think it's a pretty big jump there for me personally. I'm definitely on Grave Titan over Pilgrim. Okay. I think, I think just the raw power of Grave Titan is hard to beat. It does a lot. <laughs> Make a lot of zombie and it big power. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just a synergy card with Recurring Nightmare, right? It, you know, you can pull off <laughs> some kind of reanimator with Recurring Nightmare. There's that's a, all you want. That's the only reanimation spell left in my cube. I guess you could technically say Unearthed is a reanimation spell. But, um, but yeah, you can still do it. You can still live the dream. Um, all right, two cards left. Uh, the second to last card is Elspeth Sun's Champion, uh, which is my actually, honestly, probably my favorite six-banded finisher in the entire cube uh, across all colors. Love that card a lot. Um, how do you feel about her? I mean, it's it's fantastic. It's still a six-mana spell, so I'm hesitant to take it this early, you know, as early as you can, but it's definitely... <laughs> the earliest one can take a card. The earliest one can take an Elspeth. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I think, as far as, like, six-mana spells go, I mean, all the six-mana spells in your cube are obviously ex- incredibly powerful. This is a six-mana spell-heavy pack. I think there's only, like, yeah. five or six six-mana spells in the entire cube. We have three in this pack. At least three. It's a, it's a little bit of a coincidence here. Um, would you? How do you compare it to Grave Titan? If you had to, you had to choose. I, I think actually I, I like Grave Titan a little bit more, just because if, even if your opponent has the removal spell, it, you still get a good amount of value, and it's easy to recur it. Um, I don't know. I honestly have not. I, I don't think I've ever actually played it in your cube. Elspeth. Yeah. Mm, feels good. I recommend it. Um, yeah, she's great. I I, uh, I don't know which I would take. You're right that Grave Titan has more abilities, more able to be recurred and stuff like that. Um, but Elspeth, you know, kind of guaranteed value of value. You're getting three one ones, which is maybe comparable to two two twos. I don't know. It's, it's close. They're, yeah, they're both tough. really good. Um, all right, last card is Blood Soaked Champion. Uh, I assume we're not taking the one mana aggressive black creature here, unless you're really going to surprise me. I'm not. Um, but we could just, you know, take snuff out and wheel Blood Soaked Champion. You're, I, I could say pretty confidently you will wield Bloodsoak Champion out of this pack. At least in our playgroup, you will. Yeah. Um, so that's the whole pack. Um, so for me, my rankings are still, I think it's Copter by a decent margin. Then uh, I do like Avacyn's Pilgrim second, um, and then dropping down to Metamorph for me. Um, after that, it becomes kind of very close between, I don't know, let's say Giver of Runes, Legion War Boss, uh, and, you know, maybe Grave Titans in there, possibly. Hmm. But. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm really aggressively trying to take open picks or very cheap cards that uh, enable my whole deck's game plan in pack one. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think my order at this point is probably uh, the Copter, followed by the Metamorph, and then Grave Titan Elspeth. Fair enough. This is only fun if we disagree, so uh, yeah. I think that's the whole point. You're wrong. Let me tell you, you why. You suck at magic. <laughs> how dare you take that card? All right. What, how, did you play any magic this week? How is your, how's your arena going? Uh, Arena's going okay. I actually ended up playing not so much limited, but a little bit of standard, um, which honestly is kind of like constructed is really not my jam. Like I, I, I'm totally buying into all the, what do you, what do you want to call it? The, the gamification of the game and them. Like, you got to get those gems and you got to unlock your loot crates. Got to get those loot crates. Um, but yeah, I, I think that we've talked a lot uh, in the past couple weeks about, um, sort of how, what kind of creatures get what kind of value and do you like bane slayers or moldrifters more um and i think that the current standard environment uh and i don't know how much i can this speaks to like broader constructed environments it's just so many 
mold drifter type cards, like so many creatures that just get so much value right away uh, that I've realized I just need to stop putting removal in my decks because it doesn't do anything. Um, and what that kind of leads to is just this like proliferation of entirely proactive strategies where whoever kind of just draws the right half of their deck and gets to do their combo first wins. Um, and whether that combo is just like sequencing a bunch of you know, specific creatures in a, in a row or getting to play your uh, Wilderness Reclamation and then cast some explosive spell. Uh, and, and that's not really my kind of magic, but I keep yeah, doing it. Yeah, I, um, I have not played any Standard. I, I did catch a couple streams of Standard. I'll, I'll watch Constructed Formats just because I'm interested. You know, I feel like I can learn a lot as a cube designer from looking at how Standard decks are constructed and seeing what cards are effective and, you know, how decks are put together. So for that reason, I am kind of a, like a spectator of constructed formats. And uh, I did pop in for a couple standard streams. And, yeah, the, the, the sort of Wilderness Reclamation decks just they feel like uh, they do feel kind of like a bummer to play with and against. It's like, all right, who's going to play the most Uros? Who's going to play the biggest Hydroid Crisis? Who's going to race to get to, you know, 20 mana so they can explosion their opponent to death? It's mm-hmm. just uh, it doesn't, doesn't feel particularly interactive, um, which... Yeah, I, I can yeah. feel you. But you know what, Anthony? We don't have to play Constructed Magic and, uh, because we have cubes, and cubes oh are Oh, my great. God. Oh, my God, you're right. Yeah. I will say I finally, as, you know, and I, I'm, I'm just, like, a, doing it all wrong. <laughs> I just want to do my own custom brews, and I'm not, like, trying to figure out what the correct, you know, peak metagame deck is. Sure. Um, but I have arrived at a mono green deck, which is the, the thing that's performing best for me, and it's, like to a point where if I do get an okay draw, I can actually kill people before, you know, they get their uh, time wipe or their wilderness reclamation package online. Um, so at least if I can win, that makes it a little bit more fun. Take that, you dirtly teamer decks. Take that. Untap all your lands and die, chump. How about you? Did you play any magic this week? Well, so I, last weekend I did, um, I did, this will be a nice segue into our, our regular, our topic we have set up for this episode, but um, last weekend I did play a little bit of sealed with my neighbor, a little outside sealed, you oh, know, yeah. with, uh, with a big giant glug of hand sanitizer next to us to, to keep everything clean. She didn't touch each other's decks the at all. cards after every draw <laughs> into the hand sanitizer. Um, yeah, so uh, my neighbor is, uh, has gotten into magic somewhat recently as an adult, like within the past, let's say, like 12, 18 months, uh, mostly because of me. I'm a bad influence, what can I say? And um, he mostly plays on Arena because uh, he's got like a child and a life and doesn't have time to like go out to the LGS and draft with people, but uh, has really enjoyed Arena and gotten into playing there. So he's been grinding quite a bit on there and gets a chance to play in paper every once in a while. Um, and we played uh, these kind of two sealed decks against each other from, uh, from M21, um, just a bunch of reps because uh, you know we were just sitting there and had a bunch of time. We played for a few hours, um, and uh, it was very uh, you know it's nice it's nice to feel that you're good at something, Anthony. You, you, you ever get that feeling where you don't get a lot of like external validation in your life, and you're like you know it's nice to get some confirmation that I actually have a skill. Um, and you know he's a little bit less experienced at magic than I am, and you know I was able to to win every game and just kind of talk him through uh, you know some of the things that he could improve upon, and he was very gracious about that, and so. Uh, I don't know. It was just nice to nice to win a bunch and feel and feel competent, you know. Wow, yeah, he, wow. So your story is I beats <laughs> I beat somebody who hasn't played Magic in fifteen years over and no, 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 again. no. He, to be clear, he never played as a child, so he only picked it up as an oh, adult. Okay, brand new. And also to be clear, he's at this point where he's good enough where like I don't feel like I need to stand back against him at all. Um, and you know, like Magic is a game of variance. It's very likely he could have taken some games off me, but uh, I just didn't happen to work out that way. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, yes, I, let's, I, I'm gloating because I'm beating a, a less experienced player a bunch. But but no, I mean, I think it is. Um, 
you know, it's easy to get down on Magic because there is so much variance in it, and a lot of us are very invested in the game, and you can play a lot and then lose a lot and all of a sudden feel like, what am I even doing? Am I even any good at this? Um, and so, I don't know, it's nice to have a little reminder every once in a while that, like, yeah, I, I'm okay with this game. I can play. I can yeah. hang. I mean, honestly, yeah, that's uh, an important part. Like we've mentioned before, like we, we are not playing chess. Like we, we enjoy magic because of that degree of variance. And I think if we were playing chess, it would be like, yep, I, I am now better than this person. I rank seventh in the play group. I can always beat this person. I can never beat this person. And the fact that, right. you know, because of that variance, it's a little bit harder to tell adds a lot of uh, interesting stuff to the game. Right. I mean, it makes so, it so you can play with other people. Like, <laughs> like Exactly, Yeah. <laughs> Like, it's, I mean, you and not... I are, I think, of a similar skill level. I think you're probably a little better than me. You've been playing a lot more in Arena. But, uh, you know, it, our difference in skill level is probably minimal enough that, like, we would never be able to tell, really, from just, you know, playing a human uh, appreciable number of games with each other because there is variance as a factor and, you know, deck selection is a factor and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it keeps the game fun to know that there is variance there uh, and to know and, that, and you know. You know, it's, it's, it's not just variance. It's also that we don't have the same knowledge pool. Like, the game is so complex, it's not just a linear uh, sort of learning right. process. It's it's that you have areas of knowledge that you are definitely better at than me, and vice versa. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, you know, there's certain deck types or board states that each of us have more familiarity mm-hmm. with, they're kind of better intuitions about, and uh, yeah, no, absolutely. So, that's like, you're looking point. here at, at Pack 1, Pick 1, and you're like, oh, this Avacyn's Pilgrim, I know where that fits, I know how to make that deck work, and I know that why that's an important part. And even if I understand some other deck that we can, you know, have that sharing experience, I don't necessarily understand that as well. Not to backtrack, but Avacyn's Pilgrim was the only green card in that pack. In general, do you don't, put don't any <laughs> stock into cutting a color from a pack? Absolutely not. Zero percent for you. Uh, not this early in a pack. I mean, I mean, in pack one, you just have to... You have no idea what's going to happen. The next pack could have all green cards. So you're, like, you're not having a meaningful influence. I think especially in limited, when you get to, you know, the middle of pack one, maybe, and you're like, ah, there's one card sort of like... It, it can be like a tiebreaker, and I think it makes more of an impact in the middle of pack one, maybe. Um, but I don't think saying like, okay, this pack was full of black cards. I want to not take a black card because I don't want to be in the same color as the person to my left. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yep. In fact, I I, I feel like it's almost the opposite because if the two of us are in black, they're getting cut. And also it means the rest of the table is going to see this weird uh, sort of depleted black situation, uh, which I think actually puts you in a great situation, doesn't it? No, I, I agree completely. I, I hear this a lot in, you know, on Twitter and in discords and stuff, people talking about pack one, pick one and saying like, oh, yeah, I'm going to, you know, send a signal. I'm cutting something from this pack, pack one, pick one. Um, and I completely agree with you. I mean, you have no idea what's going to come down the raid. I mean, for all you know, that both people to the right of you, if we're talking about black in particular, they are both deciding they're playing black because of what they're seeing in their packs. And so if you're really going to warp your first pick or even your second or third or fourth pick based on just cutting a color from a pack, then uh, you could just be throwing away a bunch of value because you didn't take a better card because you thought this was there was some value associated with cutting a color and then you just got cut on it yourself or something yeah um, i will I say that uh sometimes when i really can't clever, decide it, 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 it that's what i think people are drawn to it for that reason it feels mm-hmm. like your next level thinking when you're you know trying to dissect the pack and figure out whatever else is going to take and what's going to wheel and stuff um, i will say that if i am like totally torn on a pick total tiebreaker um, I will look at the things I could reasonably expect to wheel uh, and basically use that as, 
may be a thing to push me one way or another. Um, but it is really only when I, I can't find a good reason to pick one thing over another, which means that, which to be clear is a situation where I, I am lacking enough information to make the correct decision because I believe there's a correct decision in that place. I just don't know what it is. So I'm going to basically, you know, give it up to some other external force and see, see if let that lead me instead. Do you think you could get some sort of weird positive, uh, or maybe even, I don't know what the right way to describe it, but like an affirmation that is specious out of that experience where you're like, oh, I paid attention to what I thought would wheel and the draft ended up going better for me. But maybe it's just because you did that exercise of paying attention to the rest of the pack and you noticed stuff that made that actually informed your decisions, even if not totally consciously. Yeah, that's entirely possible, I think. That's the beautiful thing about drafting is like, drafting is you sit down and you make 45 decisions back to back, but there are so many layers of complexity and things going on in those decisions and so many things that can possibly influence that. Uh, I mean, it's just, there's, it's just so deep. Uh, and that's why we can have podcasts like Limited Resources, which only talk about limited magic and record an hour and a half episode every single week for the past you know, 400 weeks or whatever. Uh, and we can still have something to talk about, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that it's entirely possible that you could basically approach that situation decide you're going to, you know, make a particular draft pick for a specific reason, feel like you get rewarded for it, but in actuality it's because of something completely unrelated and you have now have some like you said specious affirmation. You have some some indication that you were right when in actuality something else entirely is going on. Right. It's like you go on a diet and you say I'm going to cut out all of, you know, legumes and then it's like, well, sure you're you're actually being healthier but it's only because you're paying attention to what the ingredients are on things and, right or maybe you're just allergic to peanuts you didn't know <laughs> it's totally possible <laughs> all right um so i want to talk a little bit about sealed specifically i mentioned this in passing in a previous episode and uh so because of this stupid <laughs> pandemic uh stuck at home i've been playing a lot of sealed with uh, various products i play a lot of sealed of Acoria and now a lot of sealed of m21 and um you know, I really like Sealed. We've talked about that before already. Um, I think it's a lot of fun. I really like looking at a pool and trying to figure out what the best deck in that pool is and how to, you know, basically decide how much risk to take. You know, like you might get a pool where you just don't quite have enough playables and so it's worth it to take this risk and play a third color or play a splash because, you know, the other cards you'd be playing in their place aren't good enough to warrant their inclusion or maybe it's not the case. Maybe you have enough good bread and butter you know, playables that actually should have stick to two colors. It's really fun to figure out if you're like really supposed to go out of the way and play some rare, even if the rest of that color is no good. It's like, it's a really fun problem to solve for me. A really fun puzzle. Um, and I gotta say, I think Ikoria was like all time great sealed format um, for a couple of reasons. The, the biggest one I think was cycling because the abundance of cycling cards, especially the one mana color of cycling, cycling cards meant that you could, I think build a much more focused sealed deck in Aquaria than you can in other formats because you could basically take a strategy that you might be thin on cards for, like, oh, I'm going to try and do this, you know, blue-red spells thing, or I'm going to try and do this, you know, green-black mutate thing, but you just don't really have enough cards of that particular archetype because it's just sealed. You open up a pool, we have no sort of control over that. And you can kind of fill in the gaps there with just cyclers that are completely off-color or whatever and actually build a more cohesive deck um, with those cycling cards. Um, did you play any cycling or play any sealed for Aquaria? Uh Yeah, I think I did a couple pools doing some webcam magic and then a little bit on Arena as well. Did you have this experience too? Did you feel like the cycling cards in their, in their abundance kind of unlocked new different ways to build a sealed pool that you haven't seen in other formats? 
I definitely felt like cycling, cycling had a huge influence on Sealed, but I don't know if I had the same experience uh, or maybe noticed the same thing of it unlocking more options. Um, more what it felt like it did was just like build this bizarre puzzle where it'd be like, okay, this is the strongest archetype. This is the strongest color pair. I want to build that. But, you know, I have a couple incidental things that care about, uh, you know, drawing cards or, you know, cycling cards. Um, so I'm just going to start seeing what the build looks like where I put all these cycling cards in and then, oh wait, you know, I've got this dual land or two. And so actually, and then I'd end up being like, oh, okay. So I'm like playing this thing that looks like a two color deck, but is potentially doing these four awkward, weird splashes that could some kind times work out. And I feel like that often sort of like actually played against me, uh, where I just like built worse mana bases and, uh, was spending a lot of time wasting turns, cycling stuff and not being as focused. Mm. That is the, Mm. the potential downside of cycling is that, uh, you know, if you, I've heard a bunch of people describe, why having a lot of cantrips in your deck or a lot of like one mana cyclers is good is they say like oh it's good because you can run fewer lands uh and that is a side effect of running a lot of cyclers or cantrips running the sort of like xerox theory of a deck but that's not the advantage like if what you are doing is cycling because you have to because you need to find your land drop right uh you should have just put a land there and then you would have had to pay the mana to find that land right um so that's not actually the advantage. Uh, when you're actually just paying because your deck is stumbling and you have to cycle to kind of keep things moving, um, that is not the sort of, that's the fail case of cycling, right? That's not the sort of the, the edge of it and the power of it. Um, so there's a whole other topic there. We can talk about Xerox theory sometime. I'm going to put it on a list of things to talk about because I have a lot to say about Xerox theory and how people talk about it in Cube. Um, the other thing that I loved in Sealed and I mean really loved It Sealed, was the Companions, which I actually don't like in general in Magic. Um, I was not a fan of Companions, and the whole mechanic kind of rubbed me the wrong way, but I so, really yeah, think... So, I think, yeah, I think that that's actually not a topic that has been really explored. Um, yeah, it might has anybody talked about if Companions? We, if we talk a little bit about Companions. Let me just do a quick search on the Reddit for Companions, see if anyone's <laughs> made a thread about it uh, or talked about it at all. Um, yeah, I mean, companions were, were a very hot topic. Uh, we were not making the podcast back when this is all going on, which is probably for the best. But um, suffice it to say, I, I'm in the group of people that uh, I felt like companions were, regardless of power level implications, I don't care when they print powerful cards. Like, please, Wizards of the Coast, print and ban cards all the time. I don't play constructed. I don't care if you ban cards. It doesn't affect me at all. Like, just keep doing it. I love it. Um, but regardless of that, I felt like it was a, a weird territory of taking away some of that variance we just talked about being so important to what we like about the game. Uh, and mostly I felt like if the ability exists within a format to limit that variance somehow, to have a playable companion, then uh, those decks would probably be significantly advantaged over decks that aren't running a companion and trying to compete on the same sort of playing field. So um, so in, in draft, I thought they were kind of interesting. We can talk about that at a different time. But in sealed, I really think... It, they they totally shine. It's like the perfect format for them because you don't have this like weird, uh, you know, I first picked this companion and therefore it's going to be trivially easy for me to build around it and I'll have a broken deck, right? Like in uh, Akoria Draft, if you just start with Garuda and just know the entire time that you're going to be playing this deck, then you get, you know, 45 playables that are all meeting the stipulation and your deck kind of can't be beat. Whereas if you open a companion, you know, in the third pack of a draft, it might be completely useless to you. You can't do anything with it because you can't satisfy the stipulation. Um, 
in sealed, you just get this pool. And so now it's like, all right, here's this pile of cards, which is essentially by the law of, you know, how many cards you're opening and just randomness. It's never going to be an ideal pool for any of the companions, right? Like none of them are going to be perfectly situated to take advantage of the pool you have. Um, so you have this pool of cards. And then in addition to all of the normal calculations you're doing in your head about what colors to play and you know which bombs are going to pull you in different directions you also have this question now of like wait can i do that can i companion garuda in this deck uh and that especially in combination with the cycling um for me meant that like uh, i had so much fun building uh companion sealed decks and basically playing a bunch of like weird janky stuff to try and make them work but getting paid off by having an eighth card and i should say that I did all of my Aquaria sealed before the rules change. Um, I don't know how the rules change would affect the playability of those cards in sealed. Probably not too much because sealed's kind of slow, and you know, a three man attacks is not the end of the world. It's a sealed is often decided, I think, by by card advantage and not by tempo. So um, probably still playable. But I thought that was really fun. Um, did any of your sealed pools have a companion in them? Oh, I had uh, in the first sealed pool that I played a bunch of webcam games. I think I had four companions. Excuse I I, me? <laughs> I think I had Yorian, Zerda, uh, Obosh. That that might have been enough. Maybe just those three. And I ended up building, enough. building around Yorian uh, in sort of a blue-red deck. And Zerda was in there. Zerda doesn't really do a ton. And, like, it's definitely not viable as a companion, but it's totally a, a playable card. Um, yeah, sure. Hybrid 3-2 that has a little bit of upside. Why not? And and similarly, I think it, I think it also just didn't go well. Like, my deck played really inconsistently... This all of these feelings might go together that I just filled this deck with cycling cards and just ended up uh, losing to tempo. Bummer. <laughs> well, it's interesting we had such different experiences, right? That speaks to, you know, the just the variance in magic, and you know, you might have just had a bad couple of days with your sealed deck when you were playing over the webcam. I might have just had some good runs with my otherwise greedy companion decks and felt like it was more consistent than it actually is. But um, you know, I, we bought a whole box and built uh, sealed pools from it, and so we had a. A Lutri deck, a uh, Garuda deck, a um, we didn't companion Zerda, but we had a Zerda in one of the pools, um, and we also had a Yorian deck, um, and they were all they were so fun, every single one of them to play, especially the Garuda deck, because uh, in that deck I literally played every single even converted mana cost card that I had in my entire pool in those colors, um, and then I had I think like five or six cards that were just there to be cycled, like completely irrelevant to the game plan, only there to be cycled. Uh, and it worked really well, actually. I also had three honey mammoths, and three honey mammoths with Garuda is pretty Ooh. pretty rude. Um, I mean, do you, do you think these are just the most extreme examples of a build-around? So, whereas you might be looking yes. at uh, a sealed pool in normal format and say, like, okay, well, that enchantment doesn't really do anything. But if I include these four cards and cut these four cards, it kind of works. And now it's, like, not swapping out four cards. It's like, okay, half of my pool is no longer viable if I choose to go down this route. Yes, I, I, that's exactly what I think. I think that the companions are just like the most strict version of build arounds, and it's basically like if you want to play this card at all, you have to meet the stipulation, as opposed to a normal build around, which just says like the more of X kind of thing you have, the better this card is going to be, and the more consistent your deck is going to be. Um, so, anyway, that was my experience with the Coria sealed. I thought it was great, uh, like an all-time sealed format for me. I had fun building every single pool. I felt like they were all viable. We played almost all of them against each other, and they felt relatively evenly matched. Um, and also, I felt like there were a lot of pools that had completely viable builds that were totally different. Um, in specific, that Garuda pool also had a Vivian in it uh, and some other good green cards. And there was also mm-hmm. just like a, 
Abzan good stuff version of that deck that you know didn't play Garuda, and I I still to this day have no idea which one's better. With the tax, maybe maybe the non Garuda build is better, but um, it was just interesting. There were so many different viable ways to deal with this pool, and then my experience with M twenty one was like, oh, this is this is sealed as I remember it. This is like not as revelatory. It's still a lot of fun. The puzzle is still there, but it's very much just like, all right, what are my best cards? How am I going to get them in my deck? Uh, how much risk am I going to take to play more better cards in different strategies or colors? Um, and there wasn't this extra depth that I found from Akoria. But this all got me thinking, Anthony. And I want to talk through this with you, see what you think about it, and maybe this will become a project of mine. Um, is okay. I've never seen anybody that designed a cube specifically for sealed. Have you ever seen that before? I have not. So before you go too far in that, have you played sealed with other cubes that are not designed for sealed? I have played sealed with my own cube two or three times now. At least one of those was with you. Uh, yes, I remember I in uh, in that sort of uh, lobby in Josh's apartment building. Um, so I have done that a little bit with cubes. I will admit it's it's rare because even with just four people, I'd rather just do a weird modified draft uh, than than sealed for the most part. Um, so. Even if I pursue this project, I doubt I will ever, for example, build this in paper, because if I have an opportunity to play Magic, I probably would prefer to draft over playing Sealed as much as I love Sealed. Um, and I think it's probably why we see no or very few cubes designed to be played as Sealed uh, format. So I think it's kind of an unexplored space. Well, I mean, I, I, my question, I guess, is really, if it was just as much fun, then you wouldn't have that preference. So what's, what's wrong with Cube Sealed with a you know, cube as we have it now? I mean, I do think that sealed is uh, it's something you have less control over, right? Like um, some people, especially if you're playing casually, sitting down to like draft a cube, like cube is great for forcing whatever you want if you know that it's supported in the cube, right? Like you can't sit down at a uh, you know an Aquaria draft or an M21 draft and say like no matter what I'm going to force you know you are spells because as far as you know that might not be open in those packs, right? The packs might just not have the cards in to support that deck uh, in that particular table, and you could have known that when you sat down. So I feel like a lot of people like drafting more than sealed because you have a lot more control over the kind of games of Magic you're going to play that night. And if mm-hmm. you're in the mood to play aggro, you can play aggro. If you're in the mood to force some reanimator deck, you know, you, you know, wh- whether it works or not, you can just kind of do that. Um, and sealed, it's like you might just get a pool and not be in love with it, and then you know your night's kind of kind of shot. As I feel like why there is some preference for drafting over sealed just universally. I mean, I, th- I think there are bigger issues, which is mostly just that uh, a cube environment is typically much much more synergistic than a stock limited set. So it's not just a matter of like, oh, I want like to choose the two car- colors that are most effective and I have the most power in and mash them together and we'll be okay. It's like. Okay, I have Crystal Shard and Venser, uh, and then over here I've got a, you know, Flicker Wisp and a... Help me out here. <laughs> With, like, you're, just, you're trying to reference like a, like a, like a Blink deck, like a, a blue-white Blink deck kind of strategy? Well, no, not even. I'm trying to reference we have these completely different archetypes. And so, yeah, I've got these Blink cards, and I have, like, one reanimator piece, and then I have a, a Goblin Guide over there. And it, it, it's impossible to really make a deck that works when you're not actually drafting it. Um, combined with the fact that just the power level is so much higher that it, there's so much more focus on like having a good curve and having the right kind of fixing um, that compared to opening up a stock limited set sealed pool, it's like, okay, I have my six rares. Let's see which of those are good. Then let's lay out where I have the most playables. And it's, it's a difficult but solvable problem. Uh, and you apply that to when every card is sort of on this much higher but 
more even power level, it just becomes this like insane problem that uh, I can't imagine what kind of machine learning it would take to solve what an effective sealed build, sealed build would be. Yeah, so I mean, my experience with my own cube, which I, I will say, um, I don't know if I agree with the assertion that most cubes are more synergistic than most limited magic sets. Um, at least in my own cube, like I really strive to have just cards that are generically good in as many of the conceivable decks as possible. And and the big, the big caveat to that, the big exception is the aggro cards. To your point, if you've got a goblin guide, that's not going to go in just any red deck. It has to go in a very, very aggressive one. Otherwise, it's not going to do anything uh, useful for you. Same goes for all the other aggressive one drops. And, you know, aggro is a big question mark, I think, in a, in a sealed cube environment, a theoretical sealed cube environment, because it's a deck where you can't afford to run any cards that are uh, opposing your strategy, right? Like, you can't have an right. aggro deck and just say, like, well, I didn't get quite enough aggro cards, so I'll put these, you know, three, five drops in there, and we'll just call it a day. Um, because there's nothing worse than being stuck with two of those five drops in your opening hand, uh, and they're just basically dead cards, and you basically mulligan to five. Um, so aggro cards getting a sort of slight uh, asterisk there. I feel like I strive as much as possible to have cards in my cube that are actually not synergistic, right? They just kind of do something powerful uh, and still have an effect on, like, they still play slightly better with other cards than other, with specific other cards than, you know, other ones, but are not, like, these you know totally rigid columns where like they belong in a specific deck and nowhere else totally um, I, I don't mean that they have like discrete archetypes uh i think columns is a good way to describe that but um definitely you need to support these things like you can't just take um let's say recurring nightmare is an extremely powerful card but you absolutely need both ways to be able to generate creatures to sacrifice and also creatures with the battlefield abilities to support that and if you just open a sealed pool that has recurring nightmare the chance that you also have three or four other cards that make you feel comfortable supporting that are fairly unlikely. Uh, that's, that's definitely possible. Um, but the point of, point of this theoretical experiment is we could basically design a cube that made this experience better and like didn't have these problems you're describing. Yeah. So like, okay, so what does that look like? Well, so I would say when I drafted my own, when I played Seal with my own cube, um, my primary experience was not that it was too complicated and I couldn't figure out what to play. It was that because all the cards are powerful and because I do strive for so many generically good cards and because the power level band is narrower than a regular set, like your, like to your point, I think that the, the big standout, you know, rares and mythics and bombs in a regular sealed environment are very important because they're like a little seed crystal where you're like, all right, I got my pool. I've got this giant pile of 60 cards that, you know, is impossible to like parse and understand. Um, where am I going to start? And you start with like, well, here's a card that's really powerful. I'd like to play this if I can. And then you kind of like branch out from there. It's, I'm playing this card. It's in this color. And what other playables do I have in that color? What other removal do I have in that color? You kind of like, you know, use that as your starting point. Um, so because it lacks that, it lacks the really like spiky, uh, much more powerful cards, it really just came down to like, what colors do they get the most cards in? <laughs> like, is there any two-color pair where I got enough right. playables that I can just play two colors without having to stretch my mana? And if so, it's kind of just right to do that. Um, and you're right, aggro is not great. Uh, control and mid-range definitely dominated, and that meant that without aggro, I think control was kind of favored. And so um, the few times I played Seal with my, with my cube, it felt like you were really happy if you got good Planeswalkers and board wipes. And if you had those, then uh, you were in a pretty good position because it was hard for other decks to really pressure you on the tempo axis and like punish you for playing these big expensive spells. You could just kind of play the big stuff and be happy with it. Um, so if we try and improve this environment so that 
the sealed is more interesting. Um, what I want to try and emulate is the two things I really liked about Aquaria Limited, and we kind of already, you know, got to this a little bit. The cycling cards are really just examples of like very medium power generic cards that can go in any deck, right? Like any card with cycling one might as well just be a colorless cantrip that just says draw one, which is a very mediocre card. It's not great, uh, but you can you can actually put it in any deck, um, and so. One idea I have is like, all right, let's make sure that like a fifth of the entire cube is just like colorless cards, cards with cycling, with generic cycling costs for one uh, that are just like totally medium, completely fine. Uh, you can put them in any deck and be totally happy with it. I'm thinking cards like, you know, Solemn Simulacrum, like Filigree Familiar, like, you know, cheap little artifact dudes. Chronomaton is a good example of like, it's a fine card. It's whatever. Um, they just kind of like. Stonecrawl Serpent is, is maybe even a little powerful. Like, that card's really great. I'm pretty happy to jam that in any deck. It's not even filler. Yeah. Um, so that's the first idea. Are there other kinds of cards that would, like, be that kind of generic filler that would allow you to say, my deck has a, a focus, it has a strategy, and the reason I can have this strategy is because I had this pool of cards to fill in the gaps where the cards that didn't meet my strategy were sort of lacking. Um, are there other cards you could think of that kind of fill that, that role? I mean, I think that that kind of category you're describing has a lot of depth. Like, you've got your skittering surveyors and other yeah. kind of cantrippy colorless All creatures. Um, but a lot of the other colors, it, with the exception of just, like, cards with cycling, um, a lot of the ways that they generate card advantage or generate card selection is different and a little bit more of a build-around. So, like, I guess in red you could say we've got cards like Thrill of Possibility and Cathartic Reunion, um, but those aren't really efficient enough in most environments unless you... Either the environment's fairly low power or you have specific reasons to want to do the things those cards are doing, like Spells Matter or uh, Drawing and Discarding Matters or Getting Things in the Graveyard. So, I don't know. That yeah. sounds challenging. Yeah, the... Thrill of Possibility-esque cards are interesting because they basically give any other card in your hand cycling, you know, is, is kind of how they work um, in, in exchange for, for casting them. Um, but yeah, I mean, the fact that they're colored does mean that, like, we could include a bunch of those, but those kind of, like, looting effects tend to be, uh, looting and rummaging tend to be in blue and red, and so mm -hmm. those colors would be favored, I think, uh, if that was something we included a whole bunch of, they would have a better chance of actually building a synergistic deck. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure how that would work. Uh, I think the cyclers are the best version of that because not only do they go in any deck, but they also, all they do is draw you more of the other cards that are in your deck, right? Like um, the Skittering Surveyors and the, you know, uh, other kinds of cantripping little cards. Like they, they get there too, but they're so much more expensive. And they also provide a body, another artifact. Now it's like, am I trying to do some kind of artifact matters thing? They do other stuff that, uh, you know, detracts from the pure thinning of your deck and making your plan more sort of linear that the the cyclers allow you to do so what's what's the difference if we if we're just filling the cube with a lot of things that cycle or are colorless cards that let you sort of dig through your deck what's the difference between doing that and just saying you can just build a 30 card deck like you you're, um, you've sort of mentioned a couple times that like good question. You, just, you just were able to build more different options because you weren't forced to build as large a deck effectively yeah, that's true. I think the thing that interests me about that is that if you say you can have a smaller deck, then really there is kind of like, presumably, given that new deck size, whether it's 30 or even smaller, there's going to be just like an optimal build to like play that deck. Whereas in Aquaria, I felt like I oftentimes had this choice between I can either try and build a more synergistic deck with this filler, 
So with the sort of cost of having to cycle cards with my extra mana every now and then on extra turns, or I can build the sort of more good stuffy deck uh, without these filler cards that just has a density of reasonable cards. And that decision was a very interesting decision for me to make in a lot of pools. It was like, all right, am okay. I going to do the, the Garuda thing and play these seven cards that do literally nothing but draw me a card? Or am I going to just build this Abzan mid-range deck that has all fine cards in it and just kind of like brawls? Um, and so I, I think what I would want is not to fill the environment with so many of these things that every time it was correct to play all of the... Uh, what's the other card? It's like Skittering Surveyor that uh, was printed in the past year. I can't remember the other one. There's a bunch of these little three-mana artifacts that uh, draw you far, a card. Or... Farfinder and... Uh, right, Farfinder. This one M21, too. Is that Skittering Surveyor? Sky Scanner and... Sky Scanner, thank you. The last one is Pilgrim's Eye that I'm trying to think of. Yes, yes, all those cards. Um, so I wouldn't want to fill it with so many of those cards that it was just always correct to play eight of those and your synergistic deck on the other hand. But I think it gives you additional options to choose synergy over raw good stuff, depending on the pool you're given and your own personal biases and, and decisions at that point. So do you think you can build an environment where you have enough of these cards that are sort of taking up this, you know, this easy space that we're talking about without actually just taking away from also the synergistic cards. And, and in Aquaria specifically, a lot of those cards were powerful cards in specifically the cycling deck. Yeah, that's true. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. One of the other things I, I took note of about Sealed is that um, 60 cards is a lot. You know, I mean, we're talking about uh, building a 40-card deck. Uh, you're probably aiming for somewhere between uh, you know, 23 to 25 you know, non-lands, like playable cards, and then however many non-basics as you can fit in there. That means that you're only really playing like a little more than a third of the cards you opened. Um, so something that occurs to me about building a sealed cube is that in regular limited magic, there's a lot of cards you just really don't ever want to put in your deck, right? Like there are bad cards in the packs. That's part of magic. Um, and so you can kind of immediately just rule out a whole bunch of cards when you get to about 60, for building a cube, there's no reason to have cards that are so bad you can't put in your deck. So we have this extra space to play with. And the question is, like, what do you do with that space? Um, and I think there we can have these kind of payoff cards to building a synergistic deck with these extra cards that thin your deck as you're going if you choose to go that route um, and actually still have room for them. So something else I have here in my notes is that, like, there's a lot of cards that I would love to put in my cube decks that I don't want to put in my cube because... I huh. don't like that's, the that doesn't imp- work. <laughs> well, it, it sounds it sounds contradictory, but like there's a lot of cards that like I will never draft basically because it is too risky and it just is like wrong to take, you know, let's say the latest nickel ball is planeswalker, right? Because it's these three colors, it's a really demanding mana cost. Like it's just there's always gonna be something in the pack that is like just a safer bet and you know, guaranteed to work and it's gonna make my deck no matter what, and I don't have to go out on a limb to like take this weird thing. Um those are kinds of cards I'm really interested in this sealed environment because that represents a... I mean, it's, that's a very, like, specific one, but it's, it's a narrow build-around. Like, if you want to try and cast this card, you're going to have to dedicate a lot of resources to mana fixing, uh, and, you know, you have to kind of, like, jump through these hoops to play this particular card. So I feel like the sealed cube could also run much more demanding mana costs, like three mana or three color cards, uh, like high committal gold cards... Um, in addition to, like, you know, one- and two-color build-around cards that would basically occupy this space of, like, being those big power spikes that are like, ooh, I could play Bolas. <laughs> and, you know, it means I have to play three colors, and I have to figure out how to survive to get to cast Bolas, but, like, that's uh, that's the thing that's actually going to, like, you know, stand out to me and make me want to sort of take that strategy. 
I, Does that make I, sense? Not quite. Great. Uh, Tell me why not. Primarily because I, I think if you put Nicol Bolas, I don't remember which specific Planeswalker you're talking about, but I, I've lost to them all and they all hurt. Um, <laughs> I, I think it would be a playable card. I can I could name two people that would destroy you with it and destroy me. Oh, for sure. It definitely people playable. would be excited to draft it and play it. Oh, you think in my cube? Yeah. Oh, see, I don't, I mean, people might be excited about it, but I don't think it would be correct to take any of the Nickel Boluses highly in my cube. Uh, I think if you're playing for pure win percentage, like, the only thing you do is if you get it super, super late and there's nothing else playable in the pack, you take it, and then if you happen to get enough mana fixing, maybe you get to put it in your deck sometimes. Um, I mean, but but if it costs eight mana, like, how often are you splashing a a third color in a control deck in your cube? It's not impossible. I mean... Honestly, if you want my opinion, I don't think you should be casting eight mana cards in a control deck in my cube ever. But what if it's eight mana win the game? Like it's it's not that. it's not eight <laughs> mana you know tap out for my threat and now I'm vulnerable because I'm not able to hold up a counter spell. It's eight mana. I control the game now. Nickel Bolas is here. I hear you. So here's here's my take on that. Um, this kind of goes back to what we talked about around green, like. There are plenty of five-mana Planeswalkers that also just win you the game, basically. Like, you just play Ashiok or Teferi, and uh, if your opponent doesn't have an answer immediately, uh, you're going to win that game. You're going to run away with it. So I really don't think as a control deck you are motivated to take the risk of having a seven or eight-mana spell in your hand that takes three colors uh, and, like, being stuck with that in your opener and knowing you can't cast it for eight turns or whatever uh, over just playing much safer, cheaper cards that can also perform the exact same function. Oh, um, I just thought of the perfect... Sorry, this is a little... But, uh, you know, colorless cards that let you filter through your uh, hand and... I know, it's uh, bag of holding. Bag, bag of holding. holding. Bag of holding. <laughs> yes, I, yes, it's a bag of holding uh, environment, no doubt. Um, for sure. Bag of holding definitely goes in the uh, in the sealed cube. Card will one um, day work. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, whether we agree or not, there is a whole category of cards that... I think are liabilities in a draft, but would relish the opportunity to try and build around in a sealed environment. Um, Another good example of cards in this category for me, there's a lot of non-basic lands that, Mm -hmm. uh, like utility lands, that I would love to put in my deck, but do not provide quite enough value for me to ever really take in a draft. Um, A good example of this is is, uh, Hanware Battlements. Even if you don't have Hanware Garrison, you're not doing the whole like meld thing. Um, that's a land that taps for colorless, or you can pay red and tap it to give a creature haste. Um, that's a card that if you just gave it to me at the end of a draft, I would stick it in every mono red deck I ever had for the rest of time. Um, same goes with uh, Barbarian Ring. I've come really, really close to putting Barbarian Ring in my cube. You know what that one does? Uh, I don't. That's, um, that's an old land that uh, it's a, taps for a red and does damage to you. So it's a pain land, but it only produces red. Uh, and if you have Threshold, you can pay a red, tap it, and sack it to deal two damage to any target. I'm um, pretty sure I got all that right. Um, so it basically becomes like a shock later on in the game. If you so have, it's if you similar have to the uh, the Red Desert? It's kind of like the Desert. The Desert only hits face, um, so okay. that's just like reach. This can actually just kill creatures and stuff too. Got it. Um, so that's a card also. I would 100% put that... I'd actually put that in like pretty much any red deck. Maybe not a blue-red control deck that, you know, is trying to preserve its life total, but like I would be so thrilled to put Barbarian Ring in every red deck I ever had but I'm just never going to take it in a draft, right? Like, it's the value it adds over a mountain is, like, so marginal that uh, it's not worth a draft pick. But if you give it to me for free, I'm playing it in every deck. Um, So there's there's cards like that, too, that I feel like don't really have a place in an environment where you have to 
draft all the cards that go in your pool, but do possibly have an interesting place uh, in an environment where you're getting a sealed pool. And I like the idea of including a bunch of non-basics, which I think will also help limit some of the decision paralysis because you won't have all these non-land cards to choose from. It'll be a relatively smaller pool of non-land cards, and then all these utility lands you can kind of pick and choose from how you want to play. Hmm. But that seems a little bit counter to what you're saying about you want there to be enough of these cards that you have lots of options to play narrow strategies because there's going to be enough density of cards that just make the deck work. But if you're also putting a bunch of lands in there, it seems like that's going to provide a tension that maybe isn't working. At some point, we're going to run out of space. You're right. I don't know where the right amount of space is. 60 cards is a lot. This is also a weird... It's hard to... I feel like it would be hard to test this environment. Obviously, you can just build seal pools, but it's yeah. like... It's a lot of work to build a seal pool, and it's like... It's hard to ask somebody to do that. People will excitedly draft your cube, you know, if you hop into one of these discords mm-hmm. and offer to do a draft exchange with somebody. People like drafting, so they'll draft a cube. But uh, I don't feel like I'm going to be able to convince people right. to just it's, go it's in easy and to start say... building seal pools for free. It's easy to say, here, make the one decision. What well, would you pack one, pick one? And then, oh, what would you pack one, pick two? And how about three? And then you're kind of like getting into it, where if it's like basically make, I don't know, I don't know how you quantify how many decisions you make Too many building decisions. a sealed pool, but yeah, make all these decisions as one, at once is less appealing. That's a really good observation. Uh, drafting is very approachable because you just make one decision at a time. So yeah. you, you know, as opposed to just, here, here's a giant pile of stuff, like, figure this shit out. You know, it's like, it's too yeah. much. Um, so, I mean, overall, I'm 100% on, like, I, I'm totally with you. I absolutely enjoy building sealed pools in uh, Limited. Of course, yeah, it's it's not as fun if you're just building it, and then you're going to say, well, that's that's it. If you want to be able to play the game, so it's a little bit harder to put in front of somebody and say, like, just build a bunch of pools. Um, but sealed is great. But what I wonder about some of the observations you're making is if that you could get the same results just by tweaking some of the numbers and either saying you have a larger pool or you're building uh, a smaller deck. And, and like you say, then, if you have a larger pool or a smaller deck, um, there might still be a pretty clear optimal way to build it. So I don't know how you get that result that you're describing. Yeah. No, I agree. It's hard. So are there no are there no cards that you've thought about for your own cube and been like, wow, I would love to put this in my cube deck, but I don't feel like there's a place for this in my cube. Has that ever come up for you? I don't think so. I mean, I haven't thought about it in those terms because like, like you're saying, if, if you think it's a card that would work in the deck and you think will wheel, that's still a fine spot to have in the cube. And you're, you're, you're even in a draft, you're ending up with more than enough playables. So to say like, oh, well, I'm going to take this land that adds a little bit of value over another three drop that will probably not make my deck. That is still interesting space for decisions. You're going to talk me into putting Barbarian Ring in my cube. Every time I, every time I have this, <laughs> this like internal dialogue with myself, I'm like, you know, I always have enough playables. I can just like put a land in there. It won't hurt anything. And then I look at trying to make a cut for it, and I'm like, ooh, I, I don't. There's nothing in my cube I'm willing to cut for Barbarian Ring, a very slightly improved mm. mountain. I just don't have it in me. Um, threshold. That's, that's rough. Yeah, that's the thing is it doesn't even happen very often. <laughs> like it's it's pretty rare that it happens. So uh, yeah, like basically, I think if I were to add it to the cube, you would still rather have whatever I'm going to cut from the cube over Barbarian Ring uh, in your pool at the end of the day. Right. Um, so it's like it's just a like, perfect example of like this card that I don't think you should ever draft. But if you gave it to everybody at the end of the draft, I think you should just jam it in your deck. Just put it in the basics and don't tell anybody. 
But you know, if somebody if somebody notices Someone finds it, it. Somebody finds if it. If you find the sleeved up barbarian ring in the basics. This is like Josh's cube where it's like, yeah, there's all these there's all these cards that care about the land art, but yeah, it's up to you. <laughs> if you forget to find a, a Boy, that's a, a nightmare. A basic island that has a tree in it, that's your loss. I refuse to take the tree rampant growth in that cube <laughs> because I will not be I will not be subject to that to that tyranny. I have one more question for you about this environment and what you think about it. What do you think the mana fixing would be ideally in a sealed a sealed first environment? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. So like one thing that I find tilting about sealed is when I get a sealed pool and let's say like my blue and red are looking great. I've got like some good rares and stuff. And then my non-basic lands are just like all off-color duels. Like it just feels so stupid and frustrating it's like this is a flip of a coin i could have just gotten some on color duels but i didn't uh and you know conversely it doesn't feel bad it feels good but it's equally just you know variance when you just happen to get a pool that has all the fixing in the same colors that are also powerful but i feel like it's almost never correct to base your sealed pool on what your non-basic lands are right you wouldn't be like oh i have a bunch of blossoming sands so i'll build a green white sealed pool regardless of what my cards are so there's not this like interplay there's just this I play the best cards I can, then I play whatever fixing will cast those cards. And if it's good, it's good. If it's bad, it's bad. And that's kind of, that feels kind of to me. So my first thought was just, should all of the fixing be some variation of like rainbow fixing? And then, you know, you get to basically, you just basically say, all right, well, if it's a 360 card cube, it builds four sealed pools. I'm just going to say that on average, everyone's going to get, you know, six fixing lands or whatever. Uh, and I put in, you know, as many rainbow lands as I need to get to that density so everyone has a, a certain amount of fixing in their uh, pool regardless of what colors they're playing. I, I like that idea. I mean, that I have had that experience uh, exactly as many times as I have played Sealed where it's like, okay, my bombs are in this color, my fixing's in there. And just like you say, it is... Well, I'd maybe disagree with you a little bit in that often I think it might be correct to actually lean more towards where your fixing is. Um but it's not what's fun, and really? it's, un- it's unsatisfying when it happens. Um, I mean, it depends on the it, format. If, if you're playing a format where, like, you know, maybe it's Emin Ket Sealed, and you have a bunch of Sandwalkers, or Gustwalkers, whatever it was called, and a bunch of uh, Boros fixing and some good red cards, it's probably better than playing your one great blue bomb, um, just because the format could be pretty aggressive. Um, Right, but in that case, I feel like it's because of the cards, not the lands, right? Like, the only time I've yes. ever yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm saying changed... It's, it's... The, the the environment is is definitely going to dictate whether um, like a density of good fixing and cheap commons that are powerful uh, will actually allow you to play an efficient deck that's just going to curve out and beat people. Obviously, if you're in a format where just the rares are so much more powerful than the commons and uncommons, then you want to stretch for those. Right. I, what I was going to say is that I think the only time that my fixing lands have dictated what cards I play and seal. It just comes down to like a splash. Like, can I afford this splash or not? And it's like, sometimes you just happen to have the mana fixing to splash a card that if you didn't have this dual lands, you wouldn't be able to. So then it does actually affect that. But I don't feel like there's this back and forth of like, here are the cards I want to play. Here's the fixing I have. And like, they, they affect each other in like a direct way. It's always just like, what are the best cards? And then what fixed are available? Um, right. So yeah, so yeah I, I, th- 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 I think you're totally right that like in sealed, imagine you have a bunch of dual lands. It's just variance whether or not the dual lands are actually in the colors where your powerful cards are. And if you get those dual lands but they're in the wrong color, then it's basically just like there's some like empty slots, like non cards in your pool. So if you just say like, well, there's still the variance of how many dual lands you're going to get 
but instead of them being dual lands, it's, you know, Evolving Wilds or Prismatic Vista or Ash Barrens or City of Brass, then, like, the amount of variance is the same, but you get more lands for the same number of card slots in the cube. I really like the idea of uh, breaking Singleton for something like Ash Barrens, which I feel like Ash Barrens, and, and you, you do this in your main cube for Prismatic Vista. You have still yeah. five copies of Vista in your, in your main cube? I think eight. Eight copies. Eight. Even better. That's the number of players in a full pod. Um, Everybody gets one. Yeah, I like that's, the idea that's, that's of breaking true. Singleton two, for that. Two players each get four every time. Yes. <laughs> Some of us prioritize it more than Some other people. Some of us do. I, I end up with so many Prismatic Vistas when I draft your cube, and I gotta say, I love it. I think it's great. It's great. Yeah, I like the idea of breaking Singleton for, for cards like that that are just, they're not like, uh, you know, like I feel like a bunch of Ash Barrens and Prismatic Vistas does not encourage you to build a five-color pile the way that a big pile of City of Brasses might, right? Like, if you just got you know, four actual rainbow lands, then you're like, all right, well, I can play whatever I want. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, Prismatic Vista or Ash Brands, you have to make a commitment. You have to decide what color it's going to be. So it really fixes well for two colors, maybe a splash, but doesn't uh, doesn't encourage the greed so much. So There are even the Thriving Lands from Jumpstart, which could be interesting. I did think about the Thriving Lands. People in uh, in Peasant and Pauper Cubes are thrilled about those lands. I think they are a good fit for, for those environments where you basically like their always one color and they're also a second color of your choice um, right yeah it's, it's those, definitely those a cool space where it's like if you're in the middle of pack one and you're like okay i know i'm in white i'll take the uh, what is it thriving heath or Thri- thriving plains um Th- thriving grass thriving grass uh and you you know it's going to be a dual land that works for you uh is pretty cool mm-hmm. what are some of the um what are some of the build-arounds you think we could pull off in a sealed environment that we couldn't, that don't really work in cube necessarily? Do you, are there hmm. any that, like, jump out at you? Uh, so I'm trying to think about what's, what's different about sealed versus draft that would affect well, what build-arounds work. The same thing, I think, happens here where, like, you can afford to put a much narrower build-around in uh, that would maybe be much too risky in a draft to assume you're going to get enough of a certain effect to, to take it. Whereas in sealed, you can just put it in the pool, and if you get that, enough of that effect, you can play it, and if you don't, you don't. Right, yeah. like, um, like you know, one there's a couple, there's some couple synergies I can't, I felt like I can't make consistent enough in my own cube uh, that they end up in this sort of space. Like things like uh, like welder, for example, like goblin welder and Duretti and that kind of whole welder package. Um, I just feel like there isn't enough. Uh, it's just too linear and too narrow to make work in a drafted environment. But you could stick a couple of those in uh, this environment. And you happen to get them, then you can just make that whole deck come together and, and work. Um, that one's not as great because it's kind of uh, it's kind of AB like you need not just welder but like good welder targets. Right, Whereas, which is I mean that's that's the definition of a build around, isn't it? Well, uh, sometimes the B can be a lot more broad. So um, you know, let's say we do put a bunch of cyclers in this in this format, and then you just get a Drake Haven or something, and you're just very happy to have a Drake Haven, sure. which is kind of a you know one card build around, um, which could potentially work well. Um, so I think what you're, sure either, what you're either describing is, in addition to switching from a draft to a sealed environment, we're also switching to an environment that cares about certain things much more specifically. So it's like, okay, there are a ton of artifacts, so if you have Welder, it will be effective, um, and you are you know able to make choices about your pool because there's some amount of that resource available. Um, or build-arounds in the sense that there's maybe a little bit less consistency in terms of how the decks play out, such that you can risk, uh, you know, playing a build around like a expensive multicolor card because you're able to stretch and try and play these colors. And also you expect the games to go a little bit slower because nobody's playing focused aggressive decks. That's true. It is complicated. 
Because, I mean, you couldn't just say, like, oh, I'll put Drakehaven where normally there's, you know, 20 cycling cards. So if you're, you know, draft that early and focus to pick all those draft cards, you could still make it work in a draft. Um, you would need to way amp that up to still make that work in a sealed environment unless you're specifically making everything work with cycling. Yeah, I guess the ones that are more, more like, straightforward and work more cleanly are just the ones that really limited mana costs or, like, you know cards that are just hard to cast and you have to decide if it's worth putting a hard to cast card in your deck uh based on your pool and other cards you have going for you so maybe it's really just about having like the cool three color cards and stuff like that than it is about like traditional build arounds I'm trying to think if there are other cards that are not companions that have a like similarly strong effect on like telling you what cards you can't put in your deck um so like there are certain cards that are like you know, symmetrical color hosers uh, that, you know, basically like destroy all mm-hmm. cards of a certain type or something. I mean, honestly, like, board wipes are an example of that, right? Like, board wipes basically say, like, you know, you don't want creatures because this is going to get all the creatures gone. So if you have a bunch of board wipes in your pool, you're motivated to play very few creatures. Or, you know, you could do the same thing with, um, with other kinds of cards where they just really incentivize not putting cards in your deck. I'm trying to think of other things that fit that definition. I mean, there's there's build-arounds like polymorph effects where you want maybe token makers Ooh. and creatures of only certain uh, like expensive Ooh. mana costs. Polymorph seems like a great example to me because that's a perfect example of like, don't put these cards in your deck and those cards are small creatures. You can't have any small, medium-sized creatures in your deck if you're going to do the polymorph, Luca, Oath of Druids thing. Right. Um, that's a really great example. See, you're so smart, Anthony. Hey, thanks. I, I learned it all from my, like, second commander deck ever, which was Narset, uh, Polymorph the Three Furious Angels dot deck, which I promise was a plan. Oh, Anthony, some days, don't you miss the the days of innocence of our early years of playing commander when, you know, we were so young and so naive and no one was breaking anything? It was great. Yeah, you did get mad at me that, that one time, though. Which time? When I polymorphed all the angels on turn 12 or something like that. I didn't celebrate your brilliance? <laughs> no, and also you played a, 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 a worm coil engine, and we all thought that was very rude. I don't remember that one. My earliest deck I can remember being excited about was uh, my Ural the Miststalker uh, right, Voltron yeah. deck. I had the realization that uh, every new player has where it's like, wait a minute, they can't kill this? I'm just going to make it huge. Correct, yeah, we couldn't that's, kill uh, it. That's fun. This is, a, this is a thing for us to come back to, a cliffhanger. I want to talk at some point, Anthony, about how, in my opinion, the most pure, beautiful, perfect kind of magic is kitchen table magic. Better than the Pro Tour, better than you know the most tuned cube, better than anything is kitchen table magic. I mean, there's there's nothing better than that uh, voyage of self discovery. Yeah, the problem is it's just it's just this dragon that if you, it's, there has to be an appropriate metaphor. Wait, so what's the metaphor for something that as soon as you like chase it or pursue it, it disappears and becomes the thing you can't reach anymore? It's not a dragon. Dragons are not real. Oh, well, I want to say real one. in quotes. Like if we're inside of a metaphor and you say it's like a dragon, the dragon is real in the metaphor, right? That's how a metaphor works. Isn't it's like there some like fiction. phrase like chasing ghosts or, you know, trying it's like to catch putting a putting your hand in a pickle jar, trying or... to catch a bed sheet or something? <laughs> I swear to god, <laughs> there is some like, you know, hokey aphorism that's like, oh, doing that's like trying to 
you know, uh, put a belt on a cat, on a catfish, and I, I can't remember what it is, but it's like that's a good the whole one. idea. I like that one. <laughs> the whole idea is that like it's a thing that is there until you try and do it, and then it's, it disappears. You know what? You're it. gonna hate it. It's it's the grass is always greener. No, it's not what it is. Don't do that. It's not what catch, it is. Catch different. the grass. Catch the figure grass. It out. That's the problem though. Kitchen table magic is the best thing, but by definition, you only get to exist within that beautiful space for a very limited amount of time because by liking kitchen table magic, you learn more about magic and then all of a sudden kitchen table becomes unattainable to you. And it's, it's actually very poetic and sad. You've made me sad. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Well, I took okay. that, I took that good Friday energy from you and just okay. uh, sucked it away. Um, on that bombshell with Anthony now sad, <laughs> we're going to close <laughs> this episode of lucky paper radio. Thank you so dearly for listening. Uh, if you'd like to find more Lucky Paper stuff, you can check out luckypaper.co. Um, special shout out to our newsletter. I, uh, I tried to do our best to send new stuff to newsletter subscribers first. So if you want to find out about new podcast episodes, new, uh, new articles, new adventures that we're on, uh, sign up for that newsletter and you'll find out before anybody else. Uh, Anthony, you still streaming over there on Twitch? Uh, I haven't so much, but maybe we'll try and, try and make an effort. Hmm. Everyone, get on Twitter and encourage Anthony to stream on Twitch so oh you God. can gather and soak up his brilliant brainwaves like I've been doing for years. It'll make you a better player and a better person. If you want to see some awful standard brews, watch I guess, Anthony I guess play Mono Green Stompy and try and kill them before they resolve their wilderness reclamation. How many subs for you to shave your head? Two? <laughs> is, is, two? Is two a big number? I, it's infinitely larger than... Zero? I don't think you can get subscribers until you get, like, uh, like approved or something. I'm not sure yeah, how it works. Anyway, uh, that's it. You got anything else to say, Anthony? Uh, enjoy your weekend. Be enjoy safe. your weekend as well, I buddy. I will see you for some Cube on, uh, on Sunday. Well, we'll see oh, you yeah, for I'm some Cube to. on Sunday. And then we can talk about that next week. <laughs>